This wisdom that we keep banging on about, this sort of idea of how do you live life well? How do you live life before God well? How do you live life skillfully, artfully? How do you live life so that you're not feeling that it's just one thing after another, but actually a life that is both pleasing to God and fruitful before God? What does this wisdom look like? We spent some of this month thinking about what it looks like in context of praying. I don't know if you think very much about it, but sometimes um, when you think about prayer, um, it's easy to think that uh, prayer is all about being serene. Um, On Friday night and Saturday, I uh, spent um, 24 hours I was leading a kind of retreat, but it was in uh, the community of the Resurrection at Murfield, which is a monastery and a training, a seminary and a retreat centre. And um, so we met uh, some of the brothers that that live there in the monastery. And um, I don't quite know what else they do with all of their time, but there's part of me when you you meet them and they're, they're dressed in their robes and they do look. Like they're not under stress. And to be honest, there was part of it that thought, hmm. <laughs> but then it, that, that quickly went. Um, but the idea that for often when you think about prayer, it's kind of like people who are serene. You, it's about retreat. It's about uh, getting away from it all. It's about sort of somehow living above the surface of the problems. But I think that's probably a false view of what prayer and a prayerful life looks like. And I certainly think it's a false view of the context in which you're called to pray. When you read the Psalms, what you read about are people in the muck and bullets of everyday life. People who are hot and sweaty. People who are dirty. People who are running. People who are on the run people who are not sure what the end of the day will bring or indeed how they'll get through it. People who wonder what will happen because of the decisions I've already made. And prayer is birthed in the Psalms out of that. Not people who manage to go on the hillside on their own overlooking the beauty of a sunset. But people who are in the midst of a battle, people who are in the midst of politics, people who are in the midst of family. And that's where they learn to pray. And it's kind of interesting that if you want to know what it means to be part of this people of God, it's interesting that the Psalms there were put within the Bible as, this is how to pray. This is the sort of prayer you're going to need. This is the way you're going to have to do it. Most of our prayers would perhaps echo something that this man wrote, Isaac Bashevis Singer, who's a a Jewish uh, novelist. But he said, whenever I'm in trouble, I pray. And because I'm in trouble all of the time, I pray almost constantly. That sense of, oh, God. Oh, God. How will you get me out of this? And what I want to do this morning is really quite simple, is read, a, read one of those prayers with you. And then say, does this help you? <laughs> does it help you in the midst of where you're at? 
So if you can get hold of a Bible or you've got your own, can you turn to Psalm 3? Psalm 3. Traditionally, this has been seen as a, a psalm, a morning psalm. Um, this idea of the, the sort of the, the prayer that might be um, suitable for the morning. This is how the psalm reads. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God won't deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep and I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I'll not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Andrew, if Anne, you can just take me to the next slide. What do you learn about prayer? Don't hide. There's no sort of brushing yourself up before God. There's no need to somehow make yourself presentable. I don't know if you're the only person in the room that um, might have thought this, but I know some folks think, I can't pray because... It's almost like I can't pray because I'm in too much of a mess, or I can't pray because I am not in the right place. I can't pray because I feel guilty. I can't pray because I've done some stuff that I know I shouldn't have done. And it's almost like all of that stuff stops the prayer. And the, the, the first thing you learn as you begin to read, which is this Psalm 3 is the first prayer. Psalm 1 and 2 were kind of like the introduction, the gateway. But Psalm 3 is God does not wait for you to clean yourself up. But God says, come as you are. He doesn't wait until you get into a religious frame of mind. You know that sort of thing that sometimes some of you might do? Let's put a worship tape on to get into a frame of mind. That may help you, but God doesn't need that. And that's great if it helps you, but God doesn't need it. It's not about, I'll get back to God when I'm doing a little better. I'll get back to God when I'm not in such a mess. I'll get back to God when I feel better. I'll get back to God when I feel more certain. I'll get back to God when things are back in a row. God says, you don't need to do that because I know you. And you're not going to tell me anything I don't know. You're not going to tell me anything you've done that I'm not aware of. And anything you've done doesn't stop the love I have for you. So don't hide. The psalm begins, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God won't pull through for you. It's kind of an interesting beginning, isn't it? I'm surrounded by people, God, who are saying, you're not there and you're not there for me. And essentially, it may well be, if you press me 
on. It may well be because David had made his own mess. What happened with these prayers is that very early on, in some of the prayers, they've got like a a superscription, a sort of a, a heading. And the heading for this one is, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So really early on in this sort of history of how this group of prayers were put together, the, they, they assigned them to a historical moment. Now, for some of us, that is not much of a helpful explanation because you may not know the wider story, but let me tell you the story really quick. Some of you know it really well, but let me tell you. David was a king, firstly, so he had a job, <laughs> but secondly, and he was actually a very good king. He was a, a smart king. He was good at politics. He was good at ruling. People looked up to him. Probably he was the person, the king, who the nation said, we've never had it so good as a king. He was great. Sounds a bit like a sort of too, too low, but he was great at his job. But he was also a father. And the truth is, he was a better king than he was a father. He was a better king than he was a father. And an event happens within his sort of extended family where one member of his extended family rapes another one. It's horrendous. Awful. And David, as the father, he doesn't have the courage or the wherewithal to actually do what he should have done, which is to, how do you sort out the mess in your own family? And effectively what David did was, David kind of took his eye off his family. And he turned a blind eye to some of the stuff that had happened. His eldest son was called Absalom. And his eldest son said, Father, effectively, you've, you've been a terrible father here. And the, the sort of strife between father and son becomes so great that Absalom, the son, decides, I'm going to take you down and I'll become king. Because I can deal with the family, which he does. Absalom deals with the family issue, not David. And Absalom says, I'm going to take your position. And so you get that even worse scenario now. It's like... Of all, it's, you know, it's almost like the thing of, sort of Netflix or soap operas, isn't it? It's like the worst thing that you could imagine happens. And it gets to such a stage that the king, David, has to flee. And he leaves the palace and he leaves the capital city. And he has to go into exile. The only people he left behind were women. He takes his army, takes his people. And Absalom is after him. And Absalom wants to kill him. And this prayer comes from that time. So when David says, I'm surrounded by foes, many are saying God won't deliver me. It's two reasons. Firstly, some people are going, God's not big enough. But the second reason is, 
David, you brought this on yourself. You brought this on yourself. I don't know if you ever, and I wouldn't recommend you do this, but I don't know if you ever um, come across the headlines in the Manchester Evening News on Facebook or something like that. But if you click through to some of those stories and then you click through to the comments about the stories, you hear absolute uh, venom and vitriol from the whole of Greater Manchester. It's like people, I don't know what they, what, they, what they think about this sort of stuff, but it's like they queue up just to say the worst thing about people for whom things have happened. And it's like if they've done something wrong, then it's just like, wah! If they've uh, made a mistake, wah! If they've brought something on themselves, a thousand people are just waiting by a keyboard to say, don't you ask for our pity. You did this. You brought this on. You stupid morons. You've got yourself to blame. A thousand people by a keyboard waiting to say, well, what did you expect? But it is quite possible that one of the most hard prayers to pray is when the thousand and first person, because you're the other one, says of yourself, well, I can't ask God to help me out of this mess because I brought this on. This is my fault. For some folks... I don't know, you know, this is a generalisation. But some folks, they, they kind of are always in victim mode. It's not my fault. <laughs> and a thousand people go, yes, it is. But there's some folks who go, do you know what? It is my fault. And I don't deserve anything. And David is surrounded by people going, why do you think God's going to help you out? This is your fault. You brought yourself upon this. You brought this upon yourself. But it's how verse 3 starts. And it reads this But you, Lord, but you, Lord. And the psalm changes because of who God is, not because of who you are. It changes because of that. And it sounds. A strange thing to say, but the but changes the prayer. But you, O oh Lord, you're not like those thousand people on the Manchester Evening News site who are waiting by a keyboard to say you don't deserve anything. You, God, are not like me who would bounce so much guilt on my own life and go, I can't come to you because of what I have brought on myself. But you, Lord, you are different, but you, but you... But you are Lord. And what David just does is he begins to, in prayer, and it sounds a bit daft, but he tells God who God is. <laughs> and I suspect that's not because he thinks God's forgotten. But I think in prayer, one of the things you do is you discern what is this faith you have? And so he starts on God's character. What does he say? He says, firstly, the Lord protects me. But God, you are a shield around me. All the rubbish 
that would be fired at me. You protect me. And, and he uses the, the image of a shield because he's a soldier. And I was trying to think of an equivalent of what it would be today. And I, <laughs> you're a firewall. You're a firewall around my life. And the stuff that would seek to get into me that would introduce the stuff that would only harm me, you, Lord, you protect me. You're the one that protects my mind. You're the one that protects my heart. You're the one that protects me from the people who bring me down. But you, Lord, are a shield. Secondly, you restore. You're the my glory. You're the one who lifts my head high. When you've messed up, when disaster is at your door because of the decisions you've taken, what makes you think you can walk around with your head lifted high? The Lord lifts your head and goes, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you. It is that picture of the prodigal son story, isn't it? Do you remember when the prodigal son comes back and the father wraps the cloak around him and goes, you were lost, but now... I don't know how you envision that story, but... Everything about that parable suggests that the sun's coming back going, I'm in absolute the deepest of the deepest of the deepest here. And the father goes, no, you're not. You brought this on yourself, my boy, but you're my son. Who's going to lift your head? God will lift your head. Fourth, uh, verse four, I call out to the Lord and he answers me. From his holy mountain, God will speak to you. You're not on your own. Next, he sustains me. I lie down and sleep and I wake again. I lie down. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. What's going to keep you going? God will keep me going. What's going to get you up in the morning without you just being in depression? What's going to get you up again when you're in the same situation, when everything hasn't changed, but actually you found something in the midst of it that keeps you going? I'll get up in the morning because he sustains me. And then finally, verse 7. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. And for some of you, you wanted to say, I don't think that should be in the Bible. That doesn't sound the sort of, sort of thing that should be in. But here's David going, do you know what? There are people out to do me down here. God, can you sort them? And I know that it's difficult to read that sometimes, but David's got this idea. There are people who are trying to disrupt what God would want. There are people who are trying to disrupt what God would want. God, would you stop them? I want to say, in a sense, you know those folks, this bargain boost thing, 
It's a big deal, actually. It's just around the corner from us here. It's a shop that's been targeted, I don't know, four or five times? Three in very quick succession. And it's targeted because it's an easy touch. So on Saturday morning, when it was robbed, and they took the safe, the third time in as many months, and what do people like that do? What they do is they destroy communities. They make people live in fear... And everybody gets isolated. I want to say, it's wicked. It's against God's good creation. It's against what God would want for our community. Now there's a whole backstory against those who may do it, but actually at the end of the day, the act itself is a wicked act. And, you, and, and that's just one little thing that you could... What do you want God to do? I want God to stop that wickedness. Because the people who do it in, are in danger of saying, it's a soft touch, we'll do it again. Because they have done. And they feel like they're the people with power. And when we pray, I want to say, God, I actually don't mind praying this. Hit them, God. Break their teeth. I'm not bothered about the teeth, God, so much. But could you stop them? Because they stand against what God's good creation is. This is not vigilante stuff. Though it does make a whole new idea of what a prayer walk might involve. <laughs> it's not vigilante. It's not our going break their teeth. It's God, you who oversee this. God, will you act? Now, I, you know, I, 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 I've got to be careful how I do this because I'm worried sometimes by Christians who quote this sort of stuff on street corners. But I think in, in, the, in, in the place of prayer, where you say, God, will you do this? Stop it, please. And you think wider than this to the obvious places, to the guys who are enslaved in car wash places, or the women who are enslaved in nail technician bars, or the sex industry, or the exploitation of children, and you want to say, and I want to say, God, that is, I think that's wicked. God, do something. Now, people are involved as well, but God, do something. Because if you don't pray that, then what you're saying is, as long as I'm okay. This is the character of God. He sorts things. And so, what will I do? Final slide. So what will I do? I'll lie down and I'll sleep and I'll wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. I will sleep knowing that there's one who holds this. 
I will wake up ready for a new day, knowing that actually God's got this and he's got me and I'm in his place. And I'll live confidently, even when it's me that's made the mess. How do you pray on the bad days? You pray honestly. You pray openly. And you pray with a but. (laughs) This is my situation. But you, O Lord, you're the one that can deal with this. It seems right this morning that uh, we give one another opportunity to be prayed with. It's one of the things of the benefits of being part of the body of Christ is that on some days it's like, I want that. I need that. That's today. And we don't need to go into a whole stack of detail for each individual, but it's kind of like today is the day that perhaps you need to hear, actually, God, we are in a mess, but you, O Lord. And sometimes it's difficult to believe it just for yourself, and so you need someone else to come alongside you and and actually say that. (laughs) So you hear someone else say, yeah, you are. And it's not about guilt, and it's not about shame. It is a mess, but God... And so I'm going to ask Ian and the guy, the other folks, to come back, if you would. Because they'll help us. I wonder, Ian, if...